We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Every week on The Meaningful Life, I ask my witness, what makes your life meaningful? But I've reached episode 131 without talking specifically about meaning. Fortunately, my witness today specifically asked to talk about meaning because he thinks everything you think you know about meaning is wrong. How could I resist an invitation like that? Dr. Eric Maisel is the author of 50 plus books, mainly on creativity. His first degree was in creative writing. He followed it up with degrees in psychology and counselling and then went on to get a doctorate in counselling. He became a licensed family therapist in California and founded the concept of creativity coaching. Although he's officially retired as a family therapist, he still lectures and hosts workshops all over the world. He writes the Rethinking Mental Health column for Psychology Today, and he's written a series of blog posts for the Good Men Project called Everything You Think You Know About Meaning Is Wrong, which he's turning into yet another book. I mean, you're not so much a man, but a force of nature. What in your upbringing gave you so much energy? Ah, what a question. What in my upbringing? I have a little theory of personality that personality is made up of three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. Psychology, psychiatry thinks nothing about original personality, doesn't take it into account. But I think we come into the world ourselves already. And so I think I came into the world uh, stubborn. I looked around and wondered why people were doing what they were doing. I, I, I was skeptical and doubted things. And I grew up in a uh, essentially Jewish and Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn. Those were the two groups. So I would see people going to shul, to, to synagogue, and people going to church. And I wondered what in gosh name they were doing, why they were doing that. <laughs> what they could possibly be getting there and why they should why why they could be so gullible. So at any rate, very early on I was me, whoever me is. And so uh, I think I came into the world with a good deal of energy, lots of appetites and a kind of stubborn skepticism that um, I've retained to this day. So did you think a lot about meaning as a young man? I mean, typically, we sort of around sort of 15, 16, begin to ask questions like, what is the meaning of life? Did you find yourself asking those questions then? Not so much meaning. I think I started out being curious about why people were doing what they were doing. Things did not make sense to me. But I also was particularly curious about normal and abnormal, crazy and not crazy. My mom had three sisters. There were other young kids in the family who died early on from things like pneumonia and and what have you. So it was a big immigrant family, but four sisters survived. And two ended up in mental institutions, one with, let's call it depression, and one with, let's call it schizophrenia. I don't believe in these labels, but for conversation's sake, call it that. And I would go with my grandfather 
first we'd go to the live chicken market and he would pick out a chicken to be slaughtered and he'd get the chicken wrapped up and we'd get on a train from New York City and go up to Rockland in, in upstate New York to the Rockland Mental Institution. I'm not sure I have its name right, where one of my aunts was residing. So I had this experience of thinking about and being exposed to odd behaviors, questions about what was normal and what was abnormal. I had a half-brother who's now deceased, who was about half a generation older than me. And he ended up doing his uh, PhD at Yale in recidivism rate of psychiatric patients. That is, he was, he also was interested in not only what was normal, what was abnormal, but what it was like to leave an institution, not be able to survive in society, end up back in the institution, etc. So my, my early questions, I don't think were about meaning per se, but rather just the oddities of human nature, why people were doing what they were doing. I also early on, very early on, was reading existential philosophy and existential literature. I thought I was a science boy. I went to a math and science high school, so I I thought I was doing physics and math as a profession, but actually it didn't interest me. It just was something I was good at, but it didn't interest me. What did interest me was reading Sartre and Camus at ages 9, 10, 11, that kind of thing. So I was interested in core ideas of existentialism very early on, namely taking personal responsibility for one's actions and the necessity of donning the mantle of meaning maker that we needed to choose our life purposes and cultivate meaning for ourselves and not look for it out there. All of that rang true to me as I was reading it. So I'm in the existential tradition. I was reading, you know, Dostoevsky, Kafka, all the names we could name of writers in the existential tradition very early on. So I don't know where that was going in me precisely, but I was doing that sort of reading and thinking early on. I started college too young at the age of 16. Wow. And again, had no idea what I was doing. So I, you know, took physics and took calculus and took those things I was supposed to take but flunked out within a year and a half because I attended no classes. Nothing interested me. Uh, nothing of that sort interested me. And at the, at the end of that time, flunking out at the age of 18 during the Vietnam War was not a brilliant uh, life choice. And so I, I knew I would be drafted. So to beat them to the punch, I enlisted in the Army in 1965. And so when I got out, I was 21 and I had no idea what I was doing. So I got that first degree that everyone gets as a first degree when they have no idea what they're doing. I got a degree in philosophy from the University of Oregon. And I was just sort of interested going to Vietnam. My suspicion is that that would have been the opposite of meaning. You would have had a, quite a lot of experience of meaninglessness. Would I be right with that? Yes. I didn't go to Vietnam. I enlisted to go to Korea as a, if you enlisted, you could choose where to go. And I didn't want to go to Vietnam. So I chose to go to Korea, which was still a semi-active, lively place, but not Vietnam. So just to make that point, I didn't go to Vietnam. But I was questioning authority all the way through that experience. And let me circle back because I was born right after World War II, 1947. Folks in my neighborhood had the tattoos from the concentration camps. They were survivors. World War II was the thing in the neighborhood as the most recent important experience for people. 
And so for me, the idea of resistance fighter was a very important one. Somehow that, that went very deep in me, the idea that it was important to resist. Of course, Casablanca is my number one favorite movie and that sort of thing. World War II is still, for me, one of the most important things that we've engaged in, that is the fight against fascism, which never ends, was marked in a certain way during that time. So when I entered the army, I certainly didn't enter it as a resistor. I wasn't imagining that I'd be fighting at every turn within the army, fighting things. But that's the way things turned out. If an officer gave an order that made no sense to me, I would say, sir, but I would say, sir, that makes no sense to me. So I would, I was spending my time, those three years in the army, in one way or another, resisting. It wasn't so much that it wasn't meaningful because in some sense, I was having lots of meaningful experiences during that time, whether it was about what it was like to just be a man, to play with those toys, to play with those weapons, all of that felt meaningful. I think it's what an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old guy kind of wants to be doing. Whether or not that's morally correct, it's sort of viscerally correct to be playing with um, armored personnel carriers and what have you. If there were no consequences, it would be a lot of fun if there were no consequences. So no, it was not a meaningless time at all. In fact, it was a time full of meaningful experiences. Now, I read Camus and a little bit of Sartre when I was about 17 or 18 because uh, it was on my French literature course. I mean, my whole reaction to that was, I'm not clever enough to understand, you know, this, this meaning thing. And you're saying that actually approaching it as an intellectual topic is actually the first mistake we make when we're approaching meaning. So explain why you feel that. Well, yeah, let me back us up a little bit. So we have thousands of years of a metaphor of man as a seeker of meaning. The most popular book on meaning, Viktor Frankl's book, is Man's Search for Meaning. Not man's making meaning, but man's search for meaning. And that's been the metaphor for thousands of years. And of course, Philosophies and religions have supported that metaphor. They want you to believe that meaning resides in whatever it is they are selling. That's where meaning is. And if you don't embrace that fold, you'll be living a meaningless life because you will have made the mistake of not having found meaning in the right place. So that's the paradigm that I've been hoping could be shifted. That's what my work is about, is shifting that idea of seeking meaning, the idea that meaning is out there in some book, in the Bible, in some guru's speech at the top of a mountain, that it's out there. Shifting it from that idea to the idea that we ha- that it's not out there and that we have to make meaning and that meaning is essentially just a feeling. And that can go in one ear and out the other as not an important point, but it's a super important point when we think about what we're, what we're after in life. If we think about something like joy, we know that joy is just a feeling. That is, we feel joyful and it comes and goes. Nobody would imagine that they should feel joyful every second of every day. That would seem odd to be wanting that. People somehow feel that life should feel meaningful all the time, which is just as odd an idea. Because if meaning really is just a feeling, then it's naturally going to come and go. How often does one feel really joyful 
I don't know, seven minutes a day or 30 seconds a day or once every third day or what have you, that's about as often as we're going to experience life as meaningful. But there are things that we experience as meaningful, like, for example, a job or a relationship, and that, you know, most of the time my work is meaningful to me. Then you're lucky. I mean, then you're having lots of experiences of meaning. And the way we translate is that is life feels meaningful. But that's right. You're announcing that you're lucky to have lots of experiences of meaning. I think that the studies show that 90% of American workers hate their jobs. They're not experiencing going to work as meaningful. And so if they say to themselves, life is really dreary, life is meaningless, what they're saying is, I'm not having lots of experiences of meaning. I'm having very few experiences of meaning. In my worldview, then you have to do the next thing, which is try to coax experiences of meaning into existence. When I say make meaning, that's really not a true phrase because you can't force life to mean, but you can try to coax experiences of meaning into existence by, to use my language, making meaning investments in this and that, or trying to seize meaning opportunities. That is trying to do things which you have a hunch might provide the experience of meaning. So you try things out. And what if we feel we've backed the wrong horse? What would be surprising about that? The the thing is to immediately say, of course. Yeah, I spent $28,000 a year on my PhD program or whatever the real number is, and I did not find my PhD program interesting at all, and now I'm in the wrong career. Wow, what a mistake. Okay. It takes a lot of maturity to agree with what I'm saying, but but the thing to do is to not beat yourself up, but re-identify your life purpose choices. You're going to have to start fresh. You need a new list, a new menu of life purpose choices. If the old menu isn't working, let me give you a simple example of how life purposes change, shift. Because people, this is another place where people misunderstand. They think that if they've identified a life purpose, it should be a life purpose for all time. How could it not be? If it's that important, it should remain important forever. Not necessarily. Its priority in our being can shift instantly. For instance, let's say you've decided that your health is uh, something important to you, and your child comes to you and says, I need a kidney, Dad. All of a sudden, your own health has just dropped in priority, because now you, you may be deciding to go into the knife to supply your son with a kidney. The arrangement of your life purpose has just shifted dramatically. And people are not comfortable with life purpose shifts like that. It feels like their whole world is being tossed around. But in fact, it's completely natural that our life purposes might shift for just the kind of reason I just said. You might one day really be adamantly, strongly for the war your country's fighting. You believe it's a righteous war. Then you learn some information. And you discover that it was a completely unrighteous war. And now your life purposes around supporting the war have changed. That feels very bad to human beings to have that kind of shifting going on. But it should make perfect sense. If we get new information, if our circumstances change, if this or that happens, why wouldn't it be the case that the ordering of our life purposes might change? And even the actual list might change. Something might drop off it. Maybe we've been pestering ourselves for 50 years that we're supposed to be writing a novel. We're doing that pestering. 
we've been always adding that to our list of life purposes. I, I must write that novel. I must write that novel. Maybe at a certain point we go, no, no self. I'm done with that. And that's okay. Of course, that's okay. I mean, you, you may have to grieve it. It's not okay in the sense that it's not painful, but it's okay in the sense that it allows you to move on. It allows you to update your life purpose choices so that the menu that's in front of you is, is actually the menu you want to be living. Because remember, this is, these are not abstractions. These are things that are important to you or that you are announcing are important to you. So you should be getting to them in a regular way. Let me just name five things that could be on a person's list. Relationships and activism and service and, and creativity and career. Let's just name five things. If those are the things that are important to you, you should be getting to them. If you're not getting to them, you're going to be disappointing yourself. And that's the feeling you're going to end up with, not with a feeling of meaningfulness, but with a feeling of self-disappointment, that you know what's important. Look, I've got this wonderful list. These things are really important to me. My family's important, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not getting to them. Did you ever have a point in your life where you had one of these huge meaning shifts? Well, I think divorce does it. I, I, I'm not sure I could say exactly what changed. So I married my first wife. I'm going to get these dates not exactly right, but probably at the age of 22 or 23. And I think we remained together for four-ish years. So at the end of that time, when we divorced, I left my son. She gained or not gained, she had custody of our son. So that's a huge meaning shift when your identity is parent and now you see your son very rarely. So that whole time of divorce and lost parenting and what have you required an engagement with this idea of meaning shifting, of meaning having been lost. The days were not feeling meaningful. And that's when I returned to writing my first novel. This is whatever this is, 50 years ago. And so that became the focus of my passion and intellect and what have you. And so I, I regrouped pretty quickly because I had something important to turn to. And sometimes this is just the luck of the draw. An individual may not be able to identify anything that feels important. It may just feel all like an artificial exercise to name important things. Well, I can name important things if you're forcing me to make a list, but they're not really important. I'm just naming them. That's kind of the luck of the draw, isn't it? Everybody knows this. If you're lucky enough to actually fall in love with something and have it retain its importance throughout a lifetime, that's just the gods of whimsy granting you a good bit of luck. And now I'm listening to you, I'm thinking back at a time when I lost a job that was incredibly important to me, and I could have very easily sunk into despair. But actually, what I did was I I suddenly had a lot of time on my hand that I never had beforehand. I said, you know, now I've got this time and I had some money because they gave me a payoff. It wasn't going to last forever. But, you know, there's only so many hours a day you can spend looking for a job. And I thought, what would I like to do? And in fact, what I wanted to do was write a book. So I did actually write my first book at that particular point. But, there there uh, you go. And uh, you've named it. I think you used the word. You decided to label it as an opportunity. You languaged it in a certain way. You made a decision that it was going to be an opportunity. And that's the language I use about meaning opportunities. That is things we don't know what's going to transpire. You couldn't have known 
from one day to the next if it was going to work, if you were going to land on something meaningful. But you were, you were viewing it in a certain way. To use my language, you were still giving life a thumbs up as opposed to moving to a bridge and, and thinking about jumping rather than giving life a thumbs down. You were acting with hope and optimism. That's what existential psychotherapy says. It's after. is not Traditional therapy is after insight and existential therapy is after hope. And have you ever sort of been frightened that actually, you know, this back to Frankel, this search for meaning is going to come up with nothing and, you know, that life is meaningless. Did you ever fear that? Because I think it stopped me for quite a chunk of time really thinking about that question because I think I was a bit worried that I might, you know, I might go searching and come back with empty hands. No, I always knew that there was nothing to search for. Somehow, I always knew that there was nothing to search for, that this is exactly what is that we do not matter in some cosmic sense, that we are just excited matter here for whatever reasons we're here, but not because the universe has purpose. I was deeply atheistic and skeptical from the age of three or some age. So I did not think there was anything to search for. I I thought there were just stands to take, that we had to take a stand in life. That essentially life was about resisting and being a certain kind of activist on the side of humanistic values and countering fascism. And as I say, World War II was in my mind. And so, no, I'd never feared that because I never was seeking anything. There were times I didn't know what to do or what would provoke the feeling of meaning. Certainly, there were times like that. You know, if I wrote a novel and I couldn't sell it, I would have that feeling of, darn, this isn't working. And should I throw up my hands and all of that? But that was circumstantial and just had to do with a particular thing going on, not my basic view of the universe. And you consider meaning as one of nature's motivational tools. So tell us about that. Yeah. So we're born with chi, with energy. Somehow we're animated. That's who we are. We're animated creatures. And to stay alive, we have to do things that allow us to stay alive, find food, find shelter, find water, have oxygen, etc. And so whatever has created us, however nature has made us, whatever our evolutionary story is, we have to be built with mechanisms for motivation, ways to do this thing that keeps us alive. So I think nature in its wisdom has given us this particular feeling, just a feeling, this feeling of meaning, and has given us the craving to chase it. That's the motivation. We're chasing a feeling sort of like chasing a high. We're chasing a feeling, and when we get it, we're soothed by it. And so nature provides this loop for us. It demands that we go looking for it, even though there's nothing to look for. It's, it's a Nature's tricky. <laughs> it, it's asking us to go look for something that isn't out there, that's just a feeling. And then when we get it, just as with a high or something else that soothes us, we feel good. So that's why I think that meaning is a motivational tool in that sense, in that it's an itch. It's an itch that we're trying to scratch and can't really. So we have to keep after it. We keep wanting these experiences of meaning. For 95 years old, we still want our day to be filled with experiences of meaning, unless we've given up, 
unless we're in the, you know, unless we're in the corridor of an old age home, just, you know, not really there. If we're not really there, then we're giving up. That's one thing. But if we're still 95 and alive, then we still want these experiences of meaning. We're still hungry for something. We still have appetites. You may or may not remember Kafka's short story, The Hunger Artist, which always seemed very interesting to me. And the story in brief is this, the main character of the story is a feature at a circus, a sideshow, and his talent is to starve himself to death. And people come and watch him not eat, watch him starve himself to death. And the, the ringmaster or the ringleader of the, of the circus asks him, you know, how is it you have this great talent? And the hunger artist replies, I don't have any great talent, just no food has ever interested me. And if a person says that about their life, we know that they've had a life of despair. As I said before, it's the luck of the draw that things interest us. But I do think that nature builds interests into us because nature wants us to be motivated to do things. But what you say is if you act with purpose, it's bound to return. I say that. I think that may be a little bit of wishful thinking in the sense of bound to return. I think that it will return. I think that if if we live our life purposes, we make ourselves proud by our efforts, and that very activity of making ourselves proud by our efforts gives us the feeling of meaning. We feel like we're doing something meaningful because we're living our life on our terms. Okay, well, let's have a look at some of the your golden meanings, because these might give us some ideas of what to put on our purpose list. The first one is stewardship. Tell me about stewardship. Well, as we know, we're made up of these two conflicting parts. There's the, the ego part, the selfish gene that wants stuff for itself, the greedy part of us, the trickster part of us. And then there's For a lot of us, I'm not sure about the whole race or the whole species, but for a lot of us, there's also the humanistic part, the part that for whatever reason wants to support community, tribe, the whole world, wants to keep the world afloat, wants to keep civilization afloat. Wants to pass something on to the next generation. That's right. Something that's breathable and still eatable and all of that, something that still exists. And knowledge as well, not just the planet. Knowledge as well. One of the things that always struck me was how close we were to having all libraries disappear in the Dark Ages. You may or may not remember that in the Dark Ages, we were down to one library left in Constantinople. That's how close we were to losing Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and everything prior to that. That's how close we were. So it would seem to me to be a very big meaning opportunity if you were a monk in the Middle Ages to keep books alive. You would have this vision, I think, of, wow, all of this Greek and Roman stuff, we're the only repository of this. I'm going to fight like hell to keep my library open. (laughs) And that's what I mean by stewardship. I, I think that feeling would have given that monk the feeling of meaning. That the experience of living a meaningful life, not an easy life. I hope everyone who is listening understands that we're not talking about ease because what might provoke the experience of meaning might be something very difficult, like something that requires you almost to give up your life or maybe to give up your life. The second of your golden meanings is experimentation. Of course, experimentation is the heart and soul of the scientific method, but it's the only way we really learn anything. People want to avoid process, avoid the creative process, avoid all process, and just end up with a product 
somehow without doing the work of process. So experimentation is the word I'm using here to stand for the process of bringing things into existence that we did not previously know about or even know could come into existence. And one of the words that's associated with this is imagination, using our imagination. As you know, we lose our imagination through our school years because we're supposed to only know things for the test and draw inside the lines and what have you. And it gets worse and worse as we grow older to such an extent that many of my clients, as a, in my work as a creativity coach, many of my clients, they may have their MFA in creative writing, but they have no ideas because they have lost their ability to imagine. They've lost that ability that every three-year-old has. Ask any three-year-old, put a salmon and a skyscraper together, they'll put a salmon and a skyscraper together. They'll make a salmon-shaped skyscraper or a skyscraper-shaped salmon, or they'll just do something. I used to go into schools and help teach creativity. I used to have a big box of random items, and the children would come up, put their hand in, and then they had to tell a story using the item. And there was a terribly sad moment. You take this box in to a group of seven-year-olds, and I had a bone that my dog had chewed. This child pulled up this bone, and she said, this is a bone where a dog can see into the past and go on adventures. And you thought, wow, you know, this, the, exactly. the, the, the time-traveling dog, yes, please tell me that story. You take it to 13-year-olds and they can only see it literally. They said, you know, somebody's buried under the patio. A bone is a bone is a bone. And it's just so sad that we lose that marvelous ability. I'm saying that that remains a meaning opportunity for us to reconnect with our imagination, to run experiments, whatever that means, whether it's the experiment of writing a novel or the experiment of watching physics videos or whatever it might be. I write a daily haiku. It takes a few seconds. Actually, when I'm walking the dog, I often uh, write one and then I come back and write it. It sort of keeps me engaged with the world around me. Exactly. And you'll probably name as one of my meaning opportunities, creativity later. Th these are obviously related. Experimentation is the heart and soul of creativity. It's the way we have new things come about. So whether to call it creativity, whether to call it ex experimentation, whether to call it imagination, whatever words to use, we're talking about one of the kinds of things that human beings experience as meaningful, also difficult. Just to repeat this, you know, if you're working on your novel for the 300 days you work on it, for 250 days of those 300 days, you may be hating it. You may not be having good days, but still you may be having the experience of meaning on those days, even as you're having bad days. The internal conversation you're having is, wow, this paragraph is not working, but I'm doing exactly what I intend to in life. I could be in a cubicle, but I'm not. I'm here writing my novel and I'm having a hell of a time, but I'm exactly where I intend to be. So the next one is self-actualization. Some percentage of people don't know what it is. I'm going to make up a number, 5%, 10% of human beings know that they have inner resources, they have ideas, they have imagination, and an important parenthesis, and they have fallen in love with something growing up, namely reading, film, music. Just picture that seven-year-old or eight-year-old or nine-year-old sitting in a corner reading whatever it is, Harry Potter or Alice in Wonderland or something. 
A child's in love there. The child doesn't have to be instructed to go there. That's where the child wants to be, if it's that kind of child. And then that child will love literature forever. And a time will come where it will strike that child's mind, gee, I want to do that. I have it in me. I believe I have it in me. I have some doubts I have it in me, but I believe I have it in me. And so I want to give that a try. And that's what I'm meaning by self-actualization. That is the inner understanding that we maybe could do something if we gave it a go and we really want to do it, and that we're not going to be satisfied if we live our life without giving it that go. Because I see self-actualization as sort of being the person I was intended to be. You said we come in within about 30% of of material that is sort of, um, James Hillman calls it our daemon, that accompanies us and tells us, you know, what our mission is. And self-actualization is actually following that mission that our, and I'm just going to use the word soul, arrived with this instruction written on it. So that's what I'm seeing, self-actualization, what our mission is. In existential language, it would also be called authenticity or authentic living. Same idea. So the next one is appreciation. So over time, again, to use my little model of original personality, formed personality, and available personality, for many people, over time, their formed personality becomes both critical and self-critical becomes critical of other people and the world and critical of themselves. And from that stance of criticism, it turns out to be very hard to appreciate anything, a peach, a Matisse, a sunrise, and anything. In a certain sense, we've given life a thumbs down or now have some sense that life is a cheat. That's like a background coloration of the blues. Not depression, not to use a, some kind of clinical word, but just some background, minor sadness from which it's very hard to appreciate life. So that's why I think to announce to oneself, wow, I'm not sure I've appreciated anything much in the last week. What if I tried to appreciate this potato soup rather than just eat, gobble it down? Rather than just gobbling it down, let me try to savor it, appreciate it, enjoy it. These are all synonyms. Let me try to have an experience here different from just the passing experience. And I think when we talk to ourselves that way, in my language, this is like taking a step to the side in the moment, not just rushing through life, but taking a step to the side and having a self an important self-conversation here and saying, okay, rather than just having my ordinary experience with this potato soup, I'm going to appreciate it. And whether that gets you the, the experience of meaning or not, it's an opportunity. It's a possibility. You might discover that that potato soup is much more delicious today. And actually, you're experiencing all of life as better just by virtue of appreciating that soup. It's almost like you've got a, a new pair of glasses and you can see everything clearer. And brighter. That's right. Clearer and, and brighter. Clearer is not always so good. Uh, sometimes therapists sometimes... <laughs> play on the idea of clarity, that depression is just good reality testing, that when you see things too clearly, you're bound to be depressed. So it's not just clarity, but it's also brightness. <laughs> so the next one is achievement and excellence. Again, I don't know what percentage of the species needs this or wants it, but some percentage wants to win, wants to compete, wants to achieve something or other. And 
deeply knows the difference between poor, good, ordinary, average, and excellent. Deeply knows the difference between Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and his Eighth Symphony, or between the best Bach cantatas, Cantata 184 versus Cantata 183, or whatever. Understands the difference between a masterpiece and something else, and wants that for himself or herself. It's not that you have to disparage Cantata 183, but if you recognize that 184 is just a notch better, if you're that kind of person who's noticing that, then you want that from yourself also. That's what I'm saying there, that it is built into some percentage of the species to notice the gradations of things, to make judgments, to understand what's better than what, and to want that for themselves. I think this next one is one that will resonate with a lot of people, and that is service. To repeat what I said before, I do think we're bimodal creatures. That is, we have our hungry genes, our selfish genes, and they don't really want to be of service. They want to grab things from you. And then there is this other part of our nature that understands that that just is warm to other human beings, that is warmed by humanity that is moved by another person's story, and that sees service as something that is valuable. I do think that with so many of these life purposes, we have to put them in in the individual person's context, because if somebody is always giving herself away, is always being of service, that person may disappoint herself because she's never doing her own work or never, never achieving her own ambitions. So every one of these is his own trap as well, because if if you were only to do it, you'd probably be overdoing it. But if you don't overdo it, if you think of it as a menu or as a list of life purposes, then I think most people would agree that they would want service to be on their life purpose menu, maybe not as the thing they do 30 hours a week, but maybe as the thing they do three hours a week. And then the final one of your golden meanings is to be passionate. Tell me about passion. So many of my creative performing clients are merely interested in what they're doing. They're not deeply interested in what they're doing. They're merely interested. And mere interest does not sustain work over time. It's why so many creative people, 90%, 95%, don't complete what they're doing. They get started. Virginia Woolf said, I started a new novel with enthusiasm and then resignation sets in. (laughs) Most of my clients start things with some enthusiasm and then resignation sets in. But another way to think of it is the flickering candle of passion blows out at some point. And if you can't rekindle that passion, you probably can't get your creative work done or anything important to you done. So by announcing to oneself that passion is not optional, and that it's not coming from outside. That's, again, reminding oneself the source of energy in us. We have to bring the passion. Just as we have to try to coax meaning into existence, we have to bring the passion. These, again, this is another kind of self-conversation. This is us talking to us. I'm not feeling very passionate. I better generate some passion for this project, or I know I'm going to drop it. Or before you start the project, you can actually check in with yourself. You know, do I have enough passion? Do I have enough energy to actually see me through this? Because actually, I might have the energy now, but if I'm being truly honest, I'm probably not going to sustain that. Maybe I should be following another star, for want of a better word. 
That's right. And if you can't then locate something you can be passionate about, then you're going to have to fake it. If you can't locate something to be passionate about, then you're going to have to announce to yourself, well, I'm going to give this thing a try and hope that over time, passion is generated. Because you you want to be working with passion on something or working on something with the hope of it proving passionate. Or having a passionate hobby, because I mean, I don't think we have to be paid for it. If you want to be the best uh, banjo player, that's fine. You don't have to be paid to be the best banjo player no, if it's, it's actually it's giving just, you joy. That's right. It's just that it generates some juice in you, that it matters to you, that it's not merely something you do. So many people are doing so much that is merely the things they do, as opposed to anything they're actually passionate about. So we're going to sort of look practically at the subject of, um, I think, actually uh, finding passion, probably, with our letter, and that's coming up in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. I would like to invite you to go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find details of how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and become passionate about supporting us. That'd be a passion I'd love to you to, to have. If you'd like to um, have my newsletter, where I send out every two weeks details of what we're up to on The Meaningful Life, and in particular, articles that talk about particular psychological and social issues. The current newsletter is all about how to find love second time around. You'll find details of how to sign up for that and you'll find details about how to write a dilemma for us. And I scour the world for experts to um, give you a fresh insight. And this one comes from a woman. I feel completely lost. I can't focus and simple tasks like tidying my house are often beyond me. Four months ago, my partner had a heart attack and died. He was only 55. He had not been ill, nothing. It came out of the blue. One minute we were chatting on the text and the next nothing. I thought something had come up that was more pressing and thought no more about it. Although I got increasingly worried when he didn't answer my texts or calls later in the day. I finally got permission to leave work, rushed home and found him on the sofa. I called the paramedics, but I knew it was too late. I was quite calm until they took the body away and then I just screamed and screamed. I've been signed off work by the doctor, but we have all received notice that the firm will be closing later in the year, so effectively I'll be out of a job too. I would like to retire, but I'm still eight years off retirement age. I have a son from a previous relationship who's grown up and finishing his studies. I have friends who are great too, but I just don't know what to do with myself. I feel so tired. Well, first of all, let me send my condolences and I pass you over to Eric for his thoughts. To make a simple distinction, two things are going on. One is grief and the other is despair. Let's tease them apart a little bit. There's grief, of course, over the loss, over the death and over the loss of the job too, grief or the, the pre-loss of the job. There's grief there. But this person's worldview has also changed, and now life feels more like a cheat or less like a wonderful place than it maybe it felt before. 
And so there are likely few experiences of meaning available right now. She's not having those experiences, and so life is feeling meaningless. And when life feels meaningless, one of the outcomes or one of the results is that we feel exhausted. Typically, she would get a depression diagnosis, of course, but that's just an unfair label to thrust upon this situation. In my language, she needs to stop everything and ask herself the question, what's important next? Great question. What's important next? That's exactly the same as what are my next life purpose choices? They're equivalent statements, only said differently, but they're the same thing. What's important next? The trouble with what's important next makes it sound like there's a singular thing that might be important. Whereas when we talk about life purpose choices, it's clear that that there's a plural there. There's never one thing that's important in life. There are many things that are important. But let's just use the vernacular, what's important next? And we can predict that she would say, well, I need an income. And not yet, but soon she will say it would be important to be in a relationship. Not yet. I'm not saying that that's what will be on her mind now. But we can predict in a year or 18 months, if she would ask herself what's important now, she might say it like to be with somebody. So the the job, the task of a meaning maker is to regularly, especially when circumstances change this violently, to regularly ask yourself, what's important now? Because that shifts. And for me, what comes up, number one, would be the next income round, how to make money, how to survive. That's important. If you were a client, we would be chatting about how do you need to get yourself ready if you're laid off so that you're as best positioned as you can be to get your next job. So that's the sort of things we'd be talking about. And that would be the whole of it to begin with, to invite her to think about that question, what's important next. What will typically happen is if she's willing to think about that question, hope will begin to percolate up just by virtue of using self-language like importance and life purpose and all of that, using that kind of language, meaning opportunities, meaning investments. If she starts to use that vocabulary, hope naturally follows because what she's saying to herself, what she's saying to herself is, I still have a life and I'm in charge of that life. And dot dot dot. And I think maybe some good things can still come. I love your question, what's important next, but I think I want to put it on a much shorter term. You know, I think, you know, it's much more look inside and see what's important next. And, you know, like I'm going to finish recording this podcast, you're going to finish listening to it. What are you going to do next? Literally, what is the next thing you're going to do? And what would be important to do that? I mean, actually, it might be just to go outside and have a breath of a really deep breath of fresh air. I don't know, but I'm, I sort of want to put it right on a, you know, later today, tomorrow kind of viewpoint. Yep. And let's call that setting an intention, the intention as to what to do next. When we set an intention, two things need to happen. We need to align our thoughts with that intention, and we need to align our behaviors with that intention, or else the intention wasn't a real intention or didn't amount to anything. So if she were to say, I think what's next is taking a walk in nature, A, she has to watch out that the next thought isn't, that doesn't feel important enough, or I have no energy for that. If that's her next thought, I have no energy for that, then she needs to dispute that. We need to dispute thoughts that aren't serving us. 
So she would need to, this is, this is the inner conversation. I'd like to take a walk in nature and I don't have the energy for that. No, that thought's not serving me. Even if I don't have a lot of energy, I think I can get up and go. So our thoughts have to align. And then she has to get up and go. That is, we have to, if we've announced the thing we intend to do, we then need to do it or we start to badly disappoint ourselves and sink deeper into the sofa. So I completely agree that it would be good to name the next clear next thing and then just make sure that your thoughts and actions align. And I think the other thing I would like you to do is think about things that you did when you were young that gave you pleasure. And, you know, when you were a young girl, what did you do that gave you pleasure? And if you don't know the answer to that, you know, get something like a colouring book and start colouring in so that you're just sort of going back to those sort of type of times when you're, you're sort of, your mind is half on the colouring in, but you're going back there. Make sure you colour outside the lines. <laughs> If you're that kind of person, if you're a neat person, you know, follow follow your <laughs> instincts. But I think one of the places to start is what you left behind when you crossed over from that horrible threshold, from when you looked at the bone and you saw a telescope to look into the future, and when you started thinking about a sort of kitchen sink drama sort of kind of approach. I hope that's been helpful. And as I say, if you'd like to send me a, a letter, www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcasts. So, Eric, thank you very much for coming on and um, illuminating the whole topic of meaning for me. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? It's still being a resistance fighter, I think, that remains the operative energy in me. I work in the areas of critical psychology and critical psychiatry where we don't believe in the current psychiatric model. There's a lot of damage being done there, especially to kids who are receiving all of these so-called diagnoses, which are just labels. So that work remains important to me. Helping people, service remains important to me. I love working with my clients, with my creative performing artist clients. So I would say resistance, working with clients and family is very important to me. I've been with my wife for, I'm not sure, 45-ish years, a good amount of time. We have kids and grandkids and all of that remains important to me. Well, if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation goes on. I'm going to talk to Eric about one of his books, which is called How to Identify Your Life Purpose in Eight Weeks which seems like a wonderful deal to me. If you'd like to hear that conversation, you can subscribe directly via Apple and Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get all of these goodies, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.